welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on October 18th, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. My guest is Matthew Cortland, a patient and healthcare rights advocate from Massachusetts. He received his graduate training in public health from Boston University and earned a JD from George Mason University School of Law. He's disabled, chronically ill, superbly effective lawyer, writer, and speaker, as well as a well-known healthcare and disability rights activist. We recently staged a one-day symposium at my law school entitled Getting Real About Healthcare for All. Matt was kind enough to agree to join us and add his compelling thoughts about what healthcare for all should look like for those in the disability community and the dangers members of that community face during periods of transition in financing and delivery models. As it turned out, it was touch and go whether we would hear from him. Not only did the airline and TSA conspire against him, but he picked up a horrible cough and cold, something that most of us can maybe throw off or at least disguise for one presentation, but certainly not someone on his drug regimen. As a result, his presentation was punctuated by coughs, sniffles, and much drinking of tea, but of course all covered up by Matt's own wonderful self-deprecating humour. I thought long and hard about how much editing I should do to the raw recording. Matt really suffered through this presentation, and so editing it takes away the sense of that. On the other hand, I thought his message was so powerful that it should dominate proceedings. So yes, there was editing. On the subject of sound, my apologies for the overall low-quality sound of this episode. It was a noisy room. Matt wasn't the only one suffering from the cold and flu season, and there weren't enough microphones around. In case you don't listen all the way through the acknowledgements at the end of Twill, please consider visiting Matt's Patreon page. Uh, that's www.patreon.com forward slash MattBC, M-A-T-T-B-C. There you can sponsor his continued health. Towards the end of this talk, Matt asked for a breather, help, or his reasonable accommodation, as he put it, from the audience in the form of questions. I include two in the show, the first from our friend Matt Lawrence, who is a health law professor at Penn State's Dickinson Law School, and then one from my colleague Ross Silverman, who's on the faculty at the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health and also serves as a professor of public health at our law school. Thank you. Uh, thank you to the faculty and staff and, and students especially for inviting me to be with you all. Thank you all for being here. Uh, in, in a certain sense, and I guess many senses, I'm not actually supposed to be here. I am not really supposed to be a lawyer. I am a lawyer because when I was an undergraduate in college, I was a human development major at the State University of New York at Binghamton. And I got very, very sick. I stopped being able to eat food. I lost 30, 32 pounds. I, I could not go to class because I was, I was vomiting so much. And when I went to try to go to a doctor, I realized that there was no one in upstate New York who was in network. And so my then girlfriend at the time loaded me into a Volkswagen Beetle and drove me back to Massachusetts so that I could go see doctors. And that was really my first introduction to the United States healthcare system. And since then, I have been a professional sick person. And so I, I am losing my voice. Um, and so instead of the 25-minute tightly written keynote presentation that I had prepared for you all, I got together with my doctor and she said, no, that's not happening. Give, give up that pipe dream. You're 
going to be able to talk for a few minutes at a time with with tea. And so I am relying on you all as my reasonable accommodations on the basis of disability <laughs> for this to be a more interactive discussion. Um, I did want to give you some idea of, of who I am. And, and so I did bring along the PowerPoint presentation I had prepared, but my flash drive was seized by TSA, something I didn't know before yesterday. If your flash drive looks in the sole discretion of the TSA agent you are being examined by, like it could possibly bear resemblance to a weapon, they seize it. What could a flash drive do to look like a weapon? It could swing open. So the cover to protect the little bit that goes into the computer, if that swings open, it it apparently reminds them of a, a, a pocket knife. And they take your flash drive. So your keynote speaker doesn't have a presentation because it's on a flash drive at Logan and doesn't have his voice because this is the first cold and flu season in which I'm taking twice the dose of the immunosuppressant I take and adding a new immunosuppressant in. However, in order to give my voice a little bit of break and to introduce me, I just wanted to play a a two minute and 19 second clip from a Vox video I did. Again, you are my reasonable accommodations. I got sick when I was a little kid. I was about 11 years old. The United States has the most complex healthcare system in the world. It's our country's immune system. And like any immune system, it's not perfect. My immune system doesn't know that my small intestine is a thing it should not attack. That's Matthew. He lives in Massachusetts and he has Crohn's disease. Stabbing abdominal pain at like two o'clock in the morning. I had imaging done, CT scan, incredibly expensive IV antibiotic therapy. The worst experience of my life. I cannot imagine the stress that going through that experience and and not having health insurance would have caused. Matthew is one of the 70 million Americans, one in five, who gets his health care paid for by Medicaid. Without Medicaid, without access to really good medical care, I wouldn't be alive. Medicaid paid for all of those things. And that's what Matthew, the Medicaid patient from Massachusetts, worries about. My particular course of Crohn's disease is severe and resistant to treatment. That means the medicine he needs to stay alive is really expensive. Tens of thousands of dollars per year. Before he was on Medicaid, he would fight with private insurers who deny coverage. Cigna claimed to lose certified pieces of mail and not get faxes. In order to to stall approval, I continued to lose weight. I continued to be dehydrated. I continued to be malnourished. I continued to be in an incredible amount of pain. And losing Medicaid wouldn't mean he couldn't go to the emergency room. It would just mean that when he does, he wouldn't get the same kind of treatment he gets now, and he'd be stuck with thousands of dollars in hospital bills. Everything that's happened to me, the dozens of emergency room visits, the surgeries, the months worth of cumulative time spent as an inpatient in a hospital, all of it could happen to anyone. And if it does, and you live in the United States, which state you live in can mean the difference between life and death. We don't condition public education on being a model student. If your kid flunks Algebra 1, they aren't kicked out of school. They get to take Algebra 1 again. If someone's sick, they're not morally bad. They're not morally wrong. They just need health care. I am going to assume that everyone here believes that everyone in the United States should have access to health care. I'm not going to try to persuade you that health care is a thing people should have, because I'm assuming if you're here, you already believe that. What I do want to talk about 
is the perspective of the chronic illness and disability communities and what getting real about Medicare for all, whatever version, you know, whatever X we're, we're filling in the blank, what that means for us. I'm not going to try to persuade you that healthcare disparities exist in the United States, because I assume you already know that if you're here. I'm not going to try to persuade you that disparities outside of healthcare exist in the United States. But for me, the question I have for all of you, because I don't know the answer to this, is what does a healthcare system look like that is explicitly interested in dismantling the overlapping and reinforcing systems of oppression that contribute to inequality, injustice, but also negative health outcomes? What does a health reform law that is explicitly anti-karyarchy look like? What does a health reform law that is explicitly anti-ableism, because this is incredibly important to the disability and chronic illness community, what does a health reform law look like that is explicitly anti-ableism? There's been a lot of really fantastic discussion. I was I was listening um, online through headphones because uh, I didn't want to interrupt you all uh, with my coughing all morning. Um, and, and I've heard a lot of discussion about really important topics, like how do we pay for everything? I don't know the answer to that. I am not a healthcare economist. But what I'm concerned about is what do we cover? How do we cover it? <coughs> Sorry. You would think that when a medication costs $11,000 per month, like Simzia does, we'd get a better handle on the side effect profile. <laughs> it turns out it doesn't work that way. And, and so for me, and I think for many in the chronic illness and disability communities, we start with some fundamental principles about what healthcare ought to be. It ought to be universal. It ought to be high quality. It ought to be affordable to the end user, and it ought to be accessible. And in every one of those areas, I think we are currently failing dramatically. Medicare itself, as, as you undoubtedly know, is not particularly affordable for many. And this is a, a large problem for the disability community because we tend to rely on, on Medicare for, for those who are receiving SSDI, Medicare becomes their insurer. For those who are receiving SSI, who are receiving SSI because they don't have a history of work credits because perhaps they got sick as a child, they're tending to rely on Medicaid. And neither of those programs are sufficient for us. Medicare, as, as you, may, you may know, doesn't cover things like long-term services and supports. It doesn't cover the sort of help that many, many disabled folks need to be able to live independently at home in their communities, which is the best setting, the least restrictive setting. Medicaid does cover more of those things, but also enforces poverty on many people. And so I was particularly thrilled that Professor Yerby was here and was talking about these long-term care issues because they are often overlooked in these debates about Medicare. So for, for me and, and many members of, members of the community, getting real about Medicare for all meant fighting for better Medicare bills. And so that means literally going up to Capitol Hill and taking meetings with senators and their staffers and their legislative council and, and their legislative directors and saying, Actually, you have to include LTSS. Actually, you have to include home and community-based services because if you don't, we're going to close your bill. And we've had some practice over the last few years fighting for healthcare, and we've gotten pretty good at it. And it's better for you to be our friend because it's the morally correct thing to do, and it's also the politically correct thing to do, than to oppose us and to say that Medicare won't, you know, your Medicare for all bill will 
continue to segregate out people who need home and community-based services in Medicaid. So the Sanders bill, for example, now includes home and community-based services, long-term services and supports in Medicare for all. That did not used to be the case. Medicare for America, which is also sometimes referenced as Medicare for All Extra, the Center for American Progress plan, because that's the plan it was based on, and um, Congresswoman DeLauro and Schakowsky turned it into legislative language and introduced it. I helped develop that bill because they came to the disability community and said, we want to partner with you. We want your voice in the room. And so Medicare for America covers long-term services and supports. It covers some community-based services. Out of curiosity, have any of you spent any time in a skilled nursing facility? They're terrifying on the whole. There are some exceptional standouts, but as a sort of fundamental organizing principle of disability justice, we believe that people have the right to live in the least restrictive environment, which is language that we're lifting from a Supreme Court case called Olmstead, which sort of stood for the proposition that people have the right contingent because it was the, the, the holding of the court is that the right is contingent upon sort of budgetary considerations. So you don't get to explode a state's budget, but absent that, to the live in the least restrictive environment. And so so one of the, the big things that we're looking for is, does your plan do that? Another, another thing that we're looking for, how does your plan deal with the fact that some people need healthcare in order to stay alive? An interruption as we get from here to there could kill me. In Massachusetts, we moved from Medicaid-managed care organizations to accountable care organizations. And as someone who was covered by Medicaid, I went to the pharmacy and was told that they wanted, I think it was $1,200 from me in order to get the medications that I need to stay alive. And that was not all of the medications. That did not include my biologic. That was in a state that is widely regarded as having its, its hands around health policy pretty well. That was in a state that was being governed by Charlie Baker, who has a background in health insurance. He was a CEO of a health insurer. And it was on a timeline of the state's own choosing. They had been working on this transition for years in advance. And when I went to my Wegmans, because that's the best pharmacy that I have available to, uh, I have uh, available to me, and I said, I, I am here for my medications. They rung them up, and then this 19-year-old cashier looked at me just deadpanned and asked for $1,200. I don't have $1,200. We've seen that sort of implementation difficulty at the federal level. We saw it with healthcare.gov. There are any number of deep dives behind the scenes sort of trying to examine what went wrong with the rollout of healthcare.gov. I think there is no debate, though, that the rollout did not go well. What does it mean to move from where we are to, if you take, for example, the House or the Senate Medicare for All bills in either two or four years, completely reconfiguring 17 to 18% of GDP, what does that mean for people like me who die without access to healthcare? And more importantly, everyone who dies without access to healthcare who is not care lawyer. I have built my life around getting healthcare. I went to law school because Cigna tried to kill me. I went to public health school to understand the system because I didn't and I needed to be able to do so in order to survive. But for everyone who is not a white, cis, hat, male healthcare lawyer, what happens when we decide in four years we're going to reconfigure the entire healthcare industry? Who dies? Who lives? I don't know the answer to that, but it's a question 
that keeps me up at night. Another thing that I think about when we're talking about getting real about Medicare for All is we, we don't have enough doctors. There's a provider shortage. When someone graduates from medical school, they've spent four years in medical school, but they are not qualified, believe me. If you have never been an inpatient in a hospital when medical students are rounding, you don't want to rely on them for your care. It's terrifying. They're cute. They're eager. They're sort of like puppies. I don't want a puppy waiting for the antibiotics I need via IV because my intestine is perforated and keep me alive. They're cute. They're puppies. They're not in any way like competent to take care of people. So they need to go through training. We, we know this. The first year traditionally is called intern year. There's a whole residency program that is three years at a minimum. Most of residency is paid for by Medicare. Medicare funds graduate medical education. And in the 1990s, a cap was put on the number of Medicare slots. Federal law caps the number of slots of resident physician training that Medicare will pay for. Precisely one plan lifts those caps. It's Medicare for America because they listen to me when I said, hey, uh, if we're going to cover everyone and we absolutely must, we're going to need more clinicians in order to provide all of that care. These are the sorts of details. And it's really all about details for us because the details are life and death. These are the sorts of details that matter. (coughs) There's going to be a lot of coughing on that episode of 12. So it's necessary to lift the Medicare GME caps, but then you have to train physicians, and that takes some time. And so it's not just, it's logistically impossible to stand up a new program in four years, even from a regulatory perspective. It takes a really long time. There aren't going to be any physicians trained by that. Um, what, what else do we think about? We think about benefit design. There's a tweet up on the screen behind me. It is my favorite example when I'm talking to undergraduates who are interested in health policy because everybody gets 50 Tylenol at birth is a universal health care plan. Everybody gets them. Those are your 50 Tylenol. Use them however you want. Universality is not a synonym for high quality. It's not a synonym for comprehensiveness. And as someone who, in the space of a couple of years, in 2014 and 2015, generated $750,000 in medical bills, I am worried about benefit design because attempts at cost control will invariably burden, or at least every attempt at cost control that we have pursued will invariably burden people who are sort of definitionally marginalized. And even in that population will disproportionately burden not just people who are disabled, but disabled African-Americans, disabled LGBTQ queer folks. It will disproportionately burden the folks who are the most vulnerable and most marginalized. What does a health care reform plan that does not do that, that sets out to be explicitly anti-white supremacy look like? I don't know the answer to those questions, but I know that we need them. When we, when we talk about benefit design, and, and there's a lot of discussion about the cost of prescription drugs, uh, another issue that's incredibly important to my community is how we decide what we pay for. Right now, um, qualities, quality-adjusted life years are a very popular tool for determining how much a government like the UK, like Canada, should spend for prescription medication. Imagine that you are, for the moment, a parent of a disabled, medically complex child, and then ask yourself how much a year of your child's life is worth in dollar numbers. That is, in many ways, a profoundly absurd question. Your child's life is priceless. It defies any attempt to put a monetary value on it. But at the same time, healthcare bureaucracies do put a dollar value on your child's life. What if they said a year of your disabled child's life 
is worth 63% of a non-disabled child's life because your child is disabled. I am really bad at math. It's the other reason I became a lawyer instead of, you know, a clinician. And so I use round numbers when I talk about this because dyscalculate. But let's just say that we're going to assign a dollar value of $100,000 per life. My life, because I have Crohn's disease that happens to be severe and refractory to treatment, is worth in sort of quality calculation terms less than $100,000. That's that's the core of the rationing mechanism from my perspective, that, that the lives of disabled folks are worth less than the lives of non-disabled folks. I find that problematic. This should not surprise you. I've been up here talking about how I'm a disabled human being, but I also think there's just an inherent moral argument. That sort of valuation is immoral. It's unethical. And so when NICE, the, the sort of rationing part of the NHS, says that they're going to only pay for drugs, they're going to set a, they're going to set a, a, a dollar pound threshold of 30 or 40,000 pounds per year. That's what they're going to pay for a quality. Um, and if the drug costs more than that, if it's 60,000 pounds per year, they're not going to pay for it. That may seem like a neutral way of allocating scarce resources, but the burden will always fall on people who are disabled and who are chronically ill. I happen to think that's wrong. I happen to think that that mechanism of rationing care is incorrect. What do we do instead? Well, in the United States, I have um, we've seen proposals from House Democrats, most recently the Speaker Pelosi's office, of a Medicare drug pricing negotiation bill that says to pharmaceutical companies, if you don't play ball, if you don't come negotiate in good faith, we're going to tax you. Not, we're not going to cover the drug. Not, we're going to put it on the other side of a formulary because that hurts patients. And another fundamental principle of all of this about getting real for Medicare for All, about any healthcare reform, is that patients must be held harmless. Thinking about the last 48 hours, we deal with quite enough already as it is. Um, so instead of, you know, what's, what's, your, what's your bargaining leverage with providers, with pharmaceutical manufacturers? It's not like buying a used car where if you don't like the offer, you can walk away because patients need your medication. Patients need that medication. Patients need surgery. Without it, they suffer horribly. Some die. I think it's a bad thing. And so instead of putting it behind a formulary, we say to industry, we're just going to tax you more. But how do you arrive at what you think is a fair valuation? My own plug would be for the German efficiency frontier model. The Germans are very good about in law saying we will not value the lives of our disabled citizens less than the lives of our non-disabled citizens because they have an atrocious history and learn. So, so there are ways to determine prices that do not say some people's lives are worth less than other people's lives. This is the only time you are likely to hear this, I think, like ever at a conference, but I fully welcome questions, comments that are in the form of a question at this point. I need more tea. Someone else say something. Question slash comment. I'm very intrigued by the muscle that the disability community showed in the Medicaid ACA repeal fight with the, with the ability to lobby and, and advocate that you talked about. I'm curious where it, where you see it going. Uh, so so there's a there's obviously if there's a conversation today about Medicare for All, it makes a lot of sense. You'd be engaging with that conversation and making sure that to steer whatever happens to make sure that it um, you know reflects your values to the extent possible. If you were steering the ship, would you be starting with Medicare for All, Healthcare for All? Generally, where do you see that kind of momentum continuing and, and what kind of force 
you know, might be in healthcare policy. Listen, our lives were threatened. That's why the activists of ADAPT slept outside the house office buildings in wheelchairs. That's why my dear friend uh, Elena uh, co-founded Little Lobbyists and brought her daughter, Zumara, who is, I, I can't even begin to tell you how fantastic a child Zumara is. She is one of my favorite humans on the face of the planet and, and trekked up to the hill every day wheelchair with an O2SAT monitor, trade care kit with other families, and went door to door in the Senate office buildings to whip votes. And so my point there is just that we've sort of built some infrastructure. We've gotten good at this. Um, and with the lobbyists, isn't going anywhere. It's it's now, I, I think it's now a, a, a C3 and C4 combo officially. Um, ADAPT has been around for decades. ADAPT is not going anywhere. And the reliance political players inside the building, Capitol Hill, on the disability community to save the ACA, to beat back skinny repeal. Um, By the way, if you ever have a chance to stand on the Capitol lawn with a loudspeaker and yell at Mitch McConnell at about 12.30 in the morning, I highly recommend it. It is incredibly therapeutic. I think that relationships have been built. And so that is why the sort of democratic field, at least, and there are some Republicans, and I can't tell you their names in public. That's sort of where we are. But why they consult with the community actively. I think on the whole, I don't know that there is a consensus in the disability community. It's a it's it's a large it's a large large tent, and it has many different subgroups. But there are there's some consensus around principles. We don't leave anyone behind. We do not leave anyone behind, and so you cannot set the system on fire, burn it to the ground, and then rebuild it because some number of people will die. That personally informs my thinking to argue in favor of a more incremental approach. Something like Medicare for All Extra, Medicare for America, where uh, or you know, Medicare for All Who Want It, I believe is, is a new name I'm hearing in the news cycle. Because it seems to me, and I could be wrong, that moving 300 million Americans all at once from a complicated web of, of other plans, including employer-sponsored insurance, to a new federal bureaucracy because it, it let's be let's be honest, it's not Medicare as it is. None of these plans are that, that the disability community is serious about is actually Medicare because Medicare it turns out is not very good coverage. Um, as an attorney in private practice, I've had to fight Part C and Part D plans to cover. It's an example I can give you. My own grandmother. We can use my own grandmother. Um, she had stomach cancer. She had part of her stomach resected. As a result, she experiences nausea and vomiting. There's this great drug. It's called Zofran. I've taken four of them so far today. It's an amazing antiemetic. The Part C plan refused to cover Zofran for her while she was inpatient in a hospital. And then there was a peer-to-peer. They, they resolved that. I don't really understand the coding issue involved. But then she was discharged to rehab. They refused to cover Zofran in rehab. Uh, and so I ended up you know, writing a five-page appeal letter because her grandson happens to be a healthcare lawyer and they covered it. But that sort of thing is incredibly common in the Medicare space. And so we're not enthusiastic about, you know, just expanding Medicare. It's, it's, it's a branding exercise, if we're honest. Medicare for all is fundamentally a branding exercise. Um, I think that that standing up a new federal bureaucracy, writing regulations, having those regs be litigated because they will be litigated is not 
it, it's probably trying to do too much at once to, you know, honor my principle of let's not kill anyone. Um, and so a more incremental approach, I think, is superior. There are those who disagree with me, and I respect that. I just don't think it's feasible. A long-time Twitter follower, first-time good computer. Um, <laughs> but uh, thank you for your... Uh, uh, thank you for your advocacy. Thank you for shining uh, such a bright light on, on these issues. And I think one of... Uh, I'll have a comment and then, I'll, then, a, then a question for you as well. Uh, one of the things that I think you really... Uh, shine a light on is as we discuss all of these uh, different players within these systems. I mean, or we have a structure that, that is, in essence, creates a complete lack of accountability as a patient is shuffled from one uh, silo to another silo, uh, from one provider to another provider, uh, from one diagnosis to another. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, you know, as we have these discussions about this kind of comprehensive reform, the idea that somehow these outs are going to be created legislatively for people to, in order to exclude, um, I think is, is one of the big challenges with these systems uh, that we have to, that we have to address to make sure that they can't just sort of, as soon as you've got across the street or a new provider has walked in the door to meet with you, that that you handled by entirely different rules. Um, and that's the easy part question. The other the other or the, the other part is how much of this really when you're getting down to a justice issue is issues related to poverty, issues related to I mean where you know this healthcare uh, and, and, and when we're talking about healthcare uh, for the population of people with disabilities, so much of that is related to uh, to just uh, concerns about poverty, concerns about uh, gainful employment and ability to maintain employment and fragility of the ability to maintain employment. So I'm wondering how much, as you're working in the healthcare sphere, how much are you aligning those efforts with issues related to right to work? That's an excellent question. Thank you. Whether you're analyzing them as social determinants or fundamental causes, and there's a, a debate in the literature, I, I know, but if we just group them all together for the moment, I, I don't think that there's any question but that they are driving a significant portion of healthcare costs. It is an incredibly difficult political lift to say to a member of Congress the way that you actually control costs, the way that you help bring down out-of-control healthcare spending is by spending more money on social programs, on, on an actual safety net, on lifting people out of poverty. I've tried. It's hard. Um, as someone who survives on SSI of $771 a month, which is a couple of thousand dollars less than federal poverty, um, the ways that poverty impacts my health are exacerbated because I am chronically ill and disabled. Like, I, I, that was my pre-existing condition. I, I, I came to SSI this way. I've been six since I was about 11 years old. But for my clients, many of whom experience a financial shock, like a stage four breast cancer diagnosis, and experience the financial toxicity of cancer. There are any number of ways in which they become more expensive to the healthcare system once they don't have any life. It's really hard to manage someone's medication if their weight is fluctuating because they don't have enough food, for example. That was a conversation I had with an oncologist last month. Like, my, my patient is, well, it's 
because they don't have any money and, and their SNAP benefits are $31 a month. Um, and as we see this administration attack SNAP over and over and over again, this time targeting school lunch programs, um, I think there are right now three different regulations that are available for public comment that all would have the effect of reducing the number of people who receive SNAP benefits. I encourage you to submit a comment if that's the sort of thing you'd like to do. Um, we, we see the effects of that. And it's just really difficult politically to explain that poverty drives poor health outcomes, but we all know that it does. Um, I, I am actually somewhat hopeful that if we do actually move towards a universal coverage system where the government is a significant payer, the government will have a much more compelling interest in things like clean air, in, in addressing poverty and addressing environmental racism in places where particulate matter in you know, New York City, it, it's not the Upper West Side where kids are experiencing asthma at disproportionate rates. Um, and so in a sort of weird and perverse way, I am somewhat hopeful that the incredibly high cost of universal care might encourage a, a reallocation of dollars. So Matt, we've, uh, we've strained your, your voice and your energy uh, much. Thank you, but could we prevail upon you for that sort of last couple of sentences, your, your summary and your thoughts about uh, our topic today? First, thank you again. This is an incredibly important topic and very timely. For chronically ill and disabled folks, the details are literally life and death. And so as the big political debate about big ideas and big policy proposals and sound bites rage on, my hope is that scholars and practitioners and policy professionals and regulators who are actually engaged in this work keep their eyes on the details. Because the details are the difference between me being able to be here today with all of you, for which I'm incredibly grateful, and me being dead, quite literally dead. I would also say that it's important that as we keep our eye on the details and to debate the details, those of us who believe that healthcare should be universal, high quality, accessible, that we not treat each other as the enemy, even when we do have policy differences, even when they are large policy differences. I don't think any of you would be here. Like This is not generally how people who don't care about healthcare spend their Friday afternoons, right? And so I have policy disagreements with some of you, but I think that fundamentally we all want the same Thing. And there are people who don't want that. Those are the people that I think we, we sort of need to oppose. And then finally, I would say that um, the thing I, I forgot during a coughing fit there, AHIP and Pharma are going to drop Brinks trucks just full of cash to stop any actual reform. I don't remember, I don't know how many of you remember Harry and Louise. They're really good at this. They are incredibly good at this. And I'll tell you, personal experience inside the Beltway, they have gotten better. They have only gotten better. Digital is incredibly cheap for them. Facebook, because of um, the work I was doing to prepare the keynote that you didn't, you know, the, the, the tightly packaged one, I, I was it was on Facebook putting some search terms in. I am now getting ads from pharma and biopharma targeting me as some sort of like clinician. They are incredibly slick ads, incredibly slick, micro-targeted, talking about freedom in apple pie and grandma and Humera. <laughs> I wish I was making that up. They're incredibly good. And so the, the final thing is that if we're going to be real about this, we have to understand that there is an opponent. They're incredibly well-funded. They're incredibly well-organized. They have a lot of experience and a very deep bench because 
their profits allow them to buy people. So thank you so much for bearing with me and for being my reasonable accommodations. And that was the week in how to all. My thanks to Matt Lawrence, who is at MJB Lawrence on Twitter, and Ross Silverman, who is at PHLU, and of course to Matthew Cortland, who on Twitter is at MattBC, M-A-T-T-B-C. As I already mentioned, I commend to you Matt's Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash MattBC. A few dollars a week can help keep Matt alive and continuing his great advocacy work. Show notes are at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. That's N-I-C-O-L-A-S-T-E-R-R-Y. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>